Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. You're probably familiar with the name William Randolph Hearst. He was the newspaper mogul who was the basis for Orson Welles' movie Citizen Kane. Hearst was also known for having a vast art collection filled with treasures. In fact, it took a whole warehouse to contain them. There was a catalog that described every item that he owned. One day, Hearst was reading in the newspaper about a particular art treasure that he really wanted. So he told his agent to scour the earth and pay any price necessary to obtain this work of art. After a few months, the agent returned and told William Randolph Hearst he had located the treasure. It was in his own warehouse. And he'd taken a moment to look at the catalog that detailed all of the things that he owned. He could have saved a lot of effort. You know, that's a great analogy for what is true of us as Christians. The book of Ephesians is an inventory. It's a catalog of all the spiritual blessings we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the theme of the book of Ephesians is in light of all that we already have, not new things we need, but in light of everything we have already, we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Last time we began the study of the book of Ephesians by gaining an overview of the book. Paul wrote this letter after he had been in Ephesus for two years, led a great revival there. He ended up in Rome in his first imprisonment, and he wrote this letter to the Ephesians to remind them of their wealth as Christians, but as their, of their walk as a Christian. And that's the division of Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3, our wealth in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6, our walk with Christ. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And now, we're getting ready to enter into the text of the book itself, beginning in verse 3. We're going to look at the inventory, the catalog of spiritual wealth that God has already purchased for you. Now, this section, chapter, verses 3 to 14, in Greek are actually one long sentence. And let's see how it starts. Paul actually begins with a eulogy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think eulogy? Isn't that for dead people? Uh, sometimes it is. I'm reminded of the pastor who was asked to deliver a eulogy for a funeral service of a man who was notorious in this little town for being the town drunk and the worst adulterer in the town. And so he was supposed to say something nice, and the brother came to visit the pastor the day before the service and said, we both know what my brother was, but I'll give you $500 if you'll say he was a saint. Now, the pastor thought to himself, I really need those $500, but I can't destroy my credibility as a pastor. So, at the funeral service, he stood up and he said, 
Jack, we all know, was an adulterer. He was a drunkard. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> now, that's not the kind of eulogy Paul is giving here. The Greek word for eulogy, eulogia, simply means words of praise about somebody. The somebody can be dead or alive. God is not dead. We heard that from the newsboys. He's not dead. He's alive. But we still praise him. And Paul lists all the reasons in verses 3 to 14 that we should praise God. It's not because of what we say about him. It's because of what he has done for us. One scholar said it this way, when we bless God, we praise him, we speak well of him. But when God blesses us, it's not that he speaks us good, he does us good. Our blessing is in word toward other people, but his is in deed. He confers benefits upon us. In verses 3 to 14, you find all the benefits. Now, this is, as I said, one sentence in the Greek text. If Paul were in an English class, he'd fail for writing a run-on sentence. Remember, run-on sentences? You weren't supposed to do that. Well, Paul was free to do it because he was writing under inspiration from God. So, the periods and the verses you have are something human beings added later on to try to make sense of this one sentence. So, this is how I would outline the inventory. Now, I have it on your outline there. Make a couple of changes because I changed the verses last night just a little bit. Uh, in the first verses, verses 3 to 6, Paul praises God the Father who has selected us. Verses 3 to 6 are about God the Father who has selected us. Verses 7 to 12 are about God the Son who has saved us. And then verses 13 to 14 are about the Holy Spirit of God who has secured us. Why is God worthy of our praise? Because he has selected us, he has saved us, and he has secured us. Now today, for the few minutes we have left, we're going to look at what God the Father has done for us, our riches from God the Father. First, Paul names the first blessing God has given us. He has chosen us. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him now, I don't understand all the implications of that verse. I can't explain predestination and an election to you, and neither can you. Somebody said, try to explain predestination, and you may lose your mind. Try to explain it away, and you may lose your soul. I mean, we need to understand, though, that God did choose us. What I do know it means is this. My salvation did not begin with me. My salvation began with God. It wasn't only before I was born. It was before the foundation of the world. Verse 4 says that God chose us. He chose to set his affection upon us. I like what John Stott says about this. He says, the doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not human speculation. Now, why do people fight and feud and debate this whole area of predestination and election? It's because in our finite minds, we take a truth and come to a wrong conclusion. We say, well, if God has already chosen who is going to be saved, why do I even need to bother to trust in Christ? 
Why bother if God has already chosen? If God has already elected who's going to be saved, then why preach the gospel to anybody? God's going to do it anyway. Why do we preach? Why do we accept the gospel? Simple reason, because God told us to. You see, God has not only ordained the end, he has ordained the means to the end. And there is nobody who has ever been saved without hearing the gospel from somebody else or from the pages of Scripture or from choosing to believe in the gospel. Let me show you where Paul says that right in this passage. Skip down to verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It wasn't enough that God chose the Christians at Ephesus to be saved. They had to hear the message. They heard it from Paul during the two years he was preaching to them. But it wasn't enough just to hear the gospel. They had to believe in the gospel. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. Remember when Lee Strobel was here a couple of weeks ago? He told us about the investigation he had done for the resurrection. He came to the conclusion that the resurrection was the most historically reliable fact in human history, but that wasn't enough. He had to make a decision. He understood that as an almost new believer. And he came to John 1.12 and he said, there is what I need to do. And he came up with that little formula from John 1.12. Receive plus believe equals become. To become a child of God, you have to receive the truth, having heard it or read it. You have to believe the truth. But when you receive and believe, you became a child of God. Election, choosing does not eliminate the responsibility we have to trust in the gospel, receive the gospel, and believe the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher of yesteryear. He pastored the mighty Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. He believed very strongly in the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, but he was always very evangelistic in his preaching. And that bothered some people, some hyper-Calvinists. They wondered, why does Spurgeon preach to lost people if he knows who's going to be saved has already been determined? And in a sermon in 1888, Spurgeon answered that question. He said, people ask me why I don't just preach to the elect. If you would take a piece of chalk and put it on the backs of those who are elect, I would preach only to them. But since you can't do that, I preach to everybody. And that should be our attitude. Our attitude is not to unravel the mystery of election and predestination. Our duty is to receive the gospel ourselves and to tell others as many as we can about Christ. Many of you know Dr. Criswell was the pastor here for 50 years, and he was a follower of Charles Spurgeon. And the more I've read about Spurgeon, the more I see how Dr. Criswell uh, emulated his message and his ministry. But Dr. Criswell believed strongly in election and predestination. I remember so well 
When I was youth minister here, I was going through seminary and starting to grapple with these issues for the first time. <clears throat> One day we were having an all-day staff meeting at a staff member's home. And during a break, I was seated on the couch with Dr. Criswell, and I said, Pastor, I'm studying predestination and election. What do you really believe about election and predestination? He said, son, if I told my church what I really believed about it, it would shock them. You can't read the Bible and believe the Bible without believing in election. You can't look at this world without believing in predestination. But, he said, Robert, remember this. There is a vocabulary that is reserved for heaven, and there is a vocabulary we use on earth. The vocabulary of heaven includes words like predestined, elected, chosen. That's the language of heaven. The vocabulary of earth is trust in, believe in, have faith in. He said, just imagine in heaven a giant sign. And on the front side of the sign, it says, whosoever will may be saved. And people walk through that sign. They accept God's invitation. But when they get through that entrance, they look back and see on the back side of the sign the words, God's elect. It's a mystery. We can't understand it. Both are true. God chooses, but we must accept. If the doctrine of election means anything, it means that God chose us according to his grace. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, it, he may give to you. If this means anything, it means our salvation did not begin with us. It began with God. 1 John 4.10 says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And he gave himself as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins the late preacher J. Vernon McGee used to say, God did not choose us because we were good. He didn't choose us because we would do good. He chose us that we might do some good. Look again at verse 4. That's what Paul is saying. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we would become holy and blameless before him. Left to our own devices, ladies and gentlemen, you and I would never choose God on our own. Let me illustrate that for you. I want everybody to stand up where you are right now. Everybody stand up. Now, did I force you to stand up? Did I put a gun to your head? I simply said, stand up. You chose to stand up. But would you have stood up without me saying stand up, without calling you to stand up? It's a simple illustration, but it's true. We don't choose God. God begins by choosing us. You can be seated. Now, some people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God just chooses some to be saved? That is unfair. It is unfair that God would only choose some 
and not choose everybody. We live in a democracy. God ought to choose everybody. That's unfair. Paul had a lot to say about that in Romans chapter 9. Go back and listen to our sermons on Romans 9. He said, don't ever say God is unfair or unjust. First of all, God can do whatever he wants to do. But no piece of clay says to the potter, this isn't right. I don't like what you're doing. Shall we say the same thing to God? But the truth is, it's fair. It's more than fair. You see, the people who complain about God, God not being fair are people who really don't understand their own sinfulness or the sinfulness of humanity. When you really understand your sin and everybody else's sin, the question is no longer, why doesn't God save everybody? The question is, why does God save anybody? And it's because of his mercy, his grace. You go down to Huntsville, you'll see in the prison there, all kinds of prisoners locked up in death row awaiting their execution. Occasionally, the governor will choose to pardon one of those inmates on death row. Do people accuse him of being unfair because he doesn't open the prison doors and free everybody? No, everybody lauds the governor, or almost everybody, for being merciful. That prisoner, even though he was guilty, received what he didn't receive, and that was forgiveness. That's the governor's mercy. But the people who remain locked up on death row, they're not being treated unjustly. They're getting justice that they deserve. One person gets mercy, others get justice, but no one gets injustice. It is the same way with you and me and our salvation. You and I are sinners. If we're Christians, we deserve to die eternally in hell. We were like prisoners. The judgment had already been pronounced. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're like prisoners on death row waiting for our final execution in hell forever and ever. And yet God in his mercy walked down that long corridor of spiritual death row he passed by cell after cell, but he stopped in front of your cell. He looked at you in the eyes and he said, I choose you. That's what grace is all about. Our salvation has nothing to do with any good thing we did. It's not because we merited it. It's not because God knew we would do good things if we were saved. God's choice is based on his grace. God has chosen us. That's what Paul says. It's right there in the book. But he's chosen us for a purpose. He has also adopted us. He has adopted us. Look at verses 5 and 6. God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, some people use the words elect and chosen and predestination interchangeably, but they're really not the same thing. The way to remember it is this. Election has to do with people. People are elected. Predestination has to do with the purpose for which they are chosen. In fact, I put this on your outline. You might want to fill it in. Election emphasizes the who of salvation, and predestination emphasizes the why of salvation. Election emphasizes people. Predestination emphasizes purpose. God elected Noah, Abraham, Isaac. 
He elected them, but he elected them for a purpose. And you find purpose throughout the Bible. In Acts 4, it says Jesus was predestined to die on the cross for our sins. That was his purpose. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28 through 30, we have been predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And in this passage, Paul says, we have been predestined to be adopted as sons. Now, let me stop here and answer a question that a lot of people have. There are some people who teach double predestination. They teach God has chosen some people for the purpose of saving them. God has created other people for the sole purpose of damning them. Just as there are some people who are chosen for salvation, there are some people who have been chosen for the purpose of destruction. Does the Bible teach that? I don't believe so. The key verse people use to teach double predestination is Romans 9.22, where Paul talks about vessels, people who are prepared for wrath. That word prepared doesn't mean they're created for God's wrath. That word prepared means ripened. They are ready for God's wrath because of their own sin and rejection of the truth. Everybody has enough sin and disobedience on their own to go to hell. They don't need any extra push from God. The Bible doesn't teach double predestination, but it teaches that some have been predestined for a purpose, and that is for their adoption as sons. Now, what does he mean, adoption? This will help you understand the Bible, if you'll remember this. The Bible uses two metaphors, two illustrations of how we become a part of God's family. Sometimes the Bible uses the birth analogy. We are born into the family of God. Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again to enter into the kingdom of God. So sometimes the Bible refers to our salvation as a new birth, emphasizing the supernatural nature of our entrance into God's family. It also emphasizes our need to grow as Christians. We enter God's family as a baby Christian. All a baby can do is cry and wait for its feeding to come next to satisfy its hunger. Paul says we enter God's family like that. Peter said, as newborn babes, we need to long for the pure milk of the word that we may grow and respect our salvation. God doesn't want you to stay a baby Christian. He wants you to grow. So that birth analogy is an apt one. But sometimes the Bible describes our entrance into God's family as an adoption. Now, you know what an adoption is. An adoption is a legal process by which a child is taken from one family and made a part of another family. Galatians 4, 5, Romans 8, 15 talk about our adoption into God's family. You know, we erroneously, some people do, erroneously think that adopted children are somehow inferior to biological children. Not so. In fact, the opposite is true. You didn't get to choose what your biological children would be like. You just kind of got them. <laughs> they were they're already made for you. No choice really involved in that. But think about it. A child who is adopted has been chosen by their parent. The parent said no to others so he could adopt that little boy or that girl. And in the same way, God's adoption means he chose to place us into his family. But it's not just adoption, it's adoption as sons. And that's key to understanding what Paul is getting at here. 
Now, sons has nothing to do with gender. Men and women are part of the family of God. No one is superior in the family of God. The idea of sons isn't about gender, it's about maturity. You see, sometimes families will adopt a little baby. Sometimes they will adopt, especially in Paul's day, Romans would adopt young adults to be a part of their family. There came a time in a child's life, usually around 19 years of age, in which a son received all of his rights as a member of that family. As a baby and as a little child, he had little to no rights. He wasn't really a lot different than a slave. But Paul says in Galatians 4, 5, to be a son means you have full rights and benefits of an adult. And Paul is saying in Ephesians here that when God places us in his family, it's not as little babies with no rights, it's as a full-grown son with all rights. You and I share the same inheritance that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had. We are joint heirs with Jesus. And that's why he's describing us as being adopted as sons. Whatever this means, it means we praise God the Father because he has chosen us and he has adopted us. If you don't remember anything else I say this morning, remember this, election and predestination are not ideas to be debated. Instead, they are truths to be celebrated. Aren't you grateful that God chose you and that God has adopted you into his family? Now, Carolyn will tell you this is absolutely true. We get emails all the time or people calling. Is Dr. Jeffress a Calvinist? And I say, absolutely not. Well, then, is he an Arminianist? I say, absolutely not. My old theology professor and member of this church for so many years, Dr. Charles Ryer, used to say to us in theology class, men, don't let yourself be known as a Calvinist or an Arminianist. Instead, be known as a Biblicist, somebody who teaches what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that, yes, we, if we're Christians, are Christians because we have been chosen by God. It's all of grace. But the Bible also says we have a responsibility. The Bible never divorces grace from responsibility. We have a responsibility to accept the gospel and to preach the gospel. I close today with two principles that come out of this passage about God's selection. First of all, God's selection is rooted in love, not hatred. You know, there are some people who go off the deep end on election and predestination, and they like to even imagine people being created to go to hell, and they get excited about the wrath of God, and they picture people burning in hell forever and ever, and they get a kick out of that. Those people are psychologically demented. Who, who would want to get a kick out of talking about the wrath of God? Now, the wrath of God is real. Make no mistake about it. But the doctrine of election is not about God's wrath. It's about his mercy. Isn't that what verse 4 says? In love, God predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. Election is not about damnation. It's about salvation. 
Remember, God's selection is rooted in love, not hatred. Secondly, God's selection is purposeful, not arbitrary. God doesn't say, any, meeny, miny, mo, to heaven or hell, you go. It's not arbitrary. There's a purpose behind it, even though we don't understand it. Look at verse 11. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God has a purpose in electing some, choosing some for salvation. It's not a plan A and a plan B. God has one will. It's not God's wills. It works things after God's will. And your choice of salvation is a part of that perfect plan. God's selection is a truth we need to celebrate, not debate. I love the story that Marianne Bird tells in her book, The Whisper Test, about an experience she had as a little girl that forever changed her life. Listen to this. She said, I grew up knowing I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to other people. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When my schoolmates would ask, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them that I had fallen or cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Mrs. Leonard was her name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had our hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back to her. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put in Mrs. Leonard's mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. You know, even though we've been handicapped, deformed by sin in our life, God still whispers, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my little girl. And the good news of the gospel is we can be a part of the family of God by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. If you're here today and you understand your need for salvation, your need for God's forgiveness in your life, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he came to do what he came to do, and that is to die for our sins. 
If today you have the desire to trust in Christ as your Savior and become a part of God's family, you didn't come to this position on your own. God is whispering in your ear. He's calling you to himself. But hear me, God never forces himself on anyone. He's giving you the opportunity to right now receive his forgiveness. Just because you feel that tug in your heart to do so right now doesn't mean you'll always feel it or that you'll always be able to. It's possible to say no to God so many times that your heart is hardened and you can't respond. But today, if you would like to receive God's forgiveness by trusting in Christ, I encourage you, wherever you are, to pray this prayer in your heart as I prayed out loud to God, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.